0: In episode one, we broke ground on the fact that as opposed to the idea that marriage is some simplistic arrangement defined according to the dictates of constant influx humanistic variables based upon nothing more than convenience and self-gratification, marriage is in reality a creation ordinance designed, instituted, and maintained and blessed by God as a type pointing towards its intended substance. The substance, as was discussed, was and is the relationship between Christ, who is the substance of Adam, and his bride Eve, the church, who are a special creation like Eve, born from the sacrifice and death of Jesus. In the second episode, we began to examine further evidence and insight regarding biblical types and their substance. We looked at the account of the meeting and marriage of Isaac and Rebekah as well as the ancient Jewish wedding as a classical examples of the type of marriage. We also looked at Adam and Eve's respective roles in the fall beginning with Genesis chapter 3. In part three, we began our goal to diligently search out scripture in an effort to better understand the biblical meaning and understanding of marriage, as well as to answer and debunk many of the myths, aberrational beliefs, and misunderstanding which man, sin, separation, and the world have over time incorrectly attributed or attached to marriage, God, or His Word. As we concluded episode three, we had just examined several scripture references in Matthew and Mark made by Jesus regarding marriage and divorce. In part four, we turned our attention to the New Testament epistles and letters. In this episode, we continue with Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. Specifically Second Corinthians chapter eleven, verses one through four, which say the following quote, Would to God that ye bear with me a little in my folly, and indeed bear with me, for I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ, but I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that cometh preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if ye receive another spirit, which ye have not received, or another gospel, which ye have not accepted, ye might bear with him." Unquote. Here, Paul asks the Corinthian church members to, quote, bear with him, unquote, literally to be patient in listening to his folly. The word folly is better translated in context as egotism. Paul uses the term egotism in connection to two things. First, in chapter 10, Paul addresses an important discussion or dispute in the Corinthian church concerning a comparison of his authority, ministry, and power versus the perceived authority, ministry, and power of others who were in leadership positions within the Corinthian church. Some of these people were apparently boastful, perhaps even prideful, of their status in the church. But Paul makes the case that it is God who establishes, empowers, and improves those whom he wills, and not we ourselves. In this context, in chapter 11, Paul then admonishes the Corinthian church to be patient or listen and bear with Paul as he reminds them of his role in their position of the body of Christ. This is essential to offset those who were trying to undermine Paul's with power and authority, but at the same time, in doing so, Paul admits it is somewhat of a necessary evil in that it is egotistical. Paul goes on to admit that he is jealous over the Corinthian believers with a godly jealousy. Typically, we tend to think that jealousy is always a negative character trait, In our vocabulary, the word jealousy conjures up the notion of someone who is insecure or doubtful without reason over another person's devotion, love, or commitment. It assumes that the object of the devotion is pure and that there is no practical reason to believe that they are untrustworthy. Consequently, when this verse or verses where God declares himself to be a jealous God, we automatically attribute humanistic definitions of jealousy upon God and incorrectly conclude that God is insecure or that he possesses negative aspects of jealousy. But this is not the case. In order to correctly understand what the biblical definition of godly jealousy is, we need to wipe the slate clean and start over. Firstly, God's people, His elect, begin, as do all humans, as sinful, rebellious people, separated from God. We have absolutely no basis on our own to merit God's approval. According to Romans chapter 3, verse 11, there is none that seeketh after God. However, despite this, God still desires to have fellowship and a relationship with his people. Thus, God's desire towards his people is an intense desire, a longing and love to eagerly redeem and reconcile them. At the same time, God is patient and long-suffering to us while we resist, delay, and rebel. All of this action on God's part is pure and holy and constitutes one of many of God's attributes, including what we refer to as his jealousy towards his people. But we should never imagine that using humanistic terms implies that God possesses any negative attributes in his nature. So here, Paul is simply saying that He has the same godly jealousy towards those who have been spiritually born from above in large part due to his apostleship. Continuing, Paul says, For I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ, unquote. Now, I don't think it is reasonable to think that when Paul states that the Corinthian church has been espoused to one husband, that everyone in the Corinthian church was female, or that they were all unmarried prior to meeting Paul. We certainly don't think that the entire congregation of the Corinthian church was now literally married to one husband, regardless of male or female. Instead, Paul is here going to the heart of our biblical marriage type and substance. Like the type of the ancient Jewish wedding, Paul reminds us that if so be that God is pleased to draw us to a saving relationship with himself, then Christ has become our bridegroom and we individually and corporately, are now the bride, the church, the outcalled ones. We have been washed clean from our old nature, our old desires to serve the flesh, ourselves, or the loves of this world. We have a new relationship, a new desire to singularly serve the one and the only true and living God in spirit and in truth we are spiritually espoused to one husband, Christ Jesus. Just as in the type of biblical marriage, we cleave together and are one flesh, which no man can put asunder, so also, yet greater in substance, we who are espoused in marriage to Christ are one and no man can put asunder. As we saw in the ancient Jewish wedding, The bride and groom are considered married as soon as the groom pays the price for the bride. The bride accepts, and the contract is signed. Yet, marriage is not consummated immediately. The groom returns to his father's house where he prepares a suitable home for them. The groom continues preparing the home while the bride remains a virgin and prepares herself, making her wedding garment white and clean. Eventually, without warning, the father sends his son, the groom, to collect the bride and bring her home, where the marriage is consummated and a marriage feast is celebrated. All of this should sound familiar because it is exactly the imagery type Paul is drawing from to speak to the Corinthians and, by extension, to us. Paul is simply saying that it was his ministry which, by God's power and grace, was responsible for the Corinthian church being the believers that they were. It was he who was responsible for introducing them to faith in Jesus and the relationship type of marriage. Even though the Corinthian believers knew Christ, Paul states that he is concerned, quote, "...but I fear, lest by any means as a serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ." Here again, Paul continues using the type of marriage. In this case, Paul likens the church, the bride, who is the substance, to the first bride, Eve, the type, who was married to Adam, the first man, and type of the second Adam, Christ, who the church is married to. Both are joined together as one by God. Both are intended to walk together in fellowship and union. However, Satan, the serpent, targets the bride, Eve, and subtly beguiles her with false doctrine. Eventually Satan is able to place sin and separation in their lives and the union with God is broken. Like Eve, Paul is concerned that Satan will use false teachers to beguile the Corinthian believers, the church, the bride, the substance of Eve, away from Christ who is the substance of Adam, in which case they too will be corrupted as was Eve away from the simplicity that is in Christ. You may well ask, What is the simplicity that is in Christ? Well, if we go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, as we read the summary of creation, including the creation of man, i.e. both Adam and Eve, mankind generally at that point, God's evaluation of his finished work is that all is, quote, very good, unquote. In Genesis chapter two, verse twenty five, it states, quote, "And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed." Unquote. Finally, in Genesis chapter three, verse seven, immediately after the fall, we read, quote, "And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves aprons." Unquote. Notice that in both Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, and Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, Adam and Eve were naked. In the first instance, they were not ashamed. In the second instance, they were apparently not only ashamed, but were so much so that they covered themselves with aprons to hide their nakedness. Looking purely at comparing the two texts, The only thing which has changed between the two instances was an acquired knowledge of said nakedness. This brings us right back to an earlier thesis posed in the two-part episode entitled The Tree of Knowledge. Namely, that the tree of knowledge of good and evil supplied the knowledge of good and evil. It supplied the information which would eventually be codified into rules, the regulations, the laws, the statutes and ordinances of the Old Testament. The tree was the original schoolmaster of the law wrapped up in one bite of a piece of fruit aimed at ostensibly making Adam and Eve like God according to Satan. What the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil never contained any more than the law today was the power and ability to manifest all of that knowledge into actually doing 100% what the good knowledge contained 100% of the time. Nor did it supply the power or ability to manifest avoiding 100% of the evil 100% of the time. More sadly, and to the point of 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verses 1 through 4, Adam and Eve gave up the simplicity of what God had freely given them in Genesis chapter 2 verse 25. They were naked, neither had done anything other than be created by God. God had provided them everything that they would ever need. They were both created in God's image. While they were naked, they were at the same time covered by God's grace and a simplicity of faith in God's all-sufficiency for all things. But, like Satan then, like Satan now, Satan always attempts to tempt us into supplanting the simplicity of being covered by God's grace with our own efforts, works, deeds, knowledge, merits to be like God or to please God. This was what he did in the garden, and it was what he was trying to do with false teachers in the Corinthian church. Paul was dealing with this in his day the same way that the true church deals with it today. Paul then states in verse 4, Quote, For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if ye receive another Spirit which ye have not received, or another gospel which ye have not accepted, ye might well bear with him. Unquote. So, whether then or now, Satan's agenda has not changed, while Satan is not adverse to outright rebellious language against God, the original tactic which remains the most effective has always been to slightly twist or to counterfeit what God creates and ordains as good to his own benefit. Hence, Satan has no problem attempting to repackage Jesus as another Jesus who fits the needs of sinful man. Satan will be happy to provide an evil or demonic spirit to counterfeit God's Holy Spirit replete with great lying wonders to satisfy the unwary. Satan has no problem providing the good news that supposedly everyone is going to heaven. All one has to do is to have good intentions. Try hard. Do your best and God will let you in. You don't even have to be particular about who God is. You can worship any God, by any name, with any set of rituals, and you'll be okay. In the end, the real concern of Paul fits then and fits now. Even though 80% or better of what passes for Christianity does not fit the qualifications of biblical Christianity handed down once and for all to the saints, those 80% have been content to bear with, i.e. to listen to and to fall in with false prophets, false ministers, false pastors, false churches, and false doctrine. Although we take the next chapter and verse out of order, Revelation chapter 14 verses 1 through 5 dovetails with Paul's comments in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verses 1 through 4 regarding the context of spiritual virgins. Quote, And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him a hundred and forty-four thousand, having his father's name written in their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of a great thunder, and I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps, and they sung as it were a new song before the throne, and before the four beasts and the elders, and no man could learn that song but the 144,000 which were redeemed from the earth, these are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Here, John the Apostle sees a vision of the 144,000 redeemed from the house of Israel from among their respective tribes. Verse 4 is where we find the connecting reference to quote, virgins. Unquote. John refers to the 144,000 as those who have not been quote, defiled by women, for they are virgins. Unquote. Now at first glance, our initial interpretation might be that John is describing the qualifications for the 144,000 as being limited only to those who are single and who have never been married and who have never engaged in sexual intercourse within marriage. But this is not the case. If the two are connected, then John is also picking up on the type of the ancient Jewish wedding as the substance of Christ's relationship to his bride, the church. These 144,000 are those within the house of Israel who have been redeemed and have a relationship with Jesus. If they have done so, then Christ has become their bridegroom, the redeemed have by God's grace been espoused to Christ as his bride, and as such they are singularly devoted to Jesus as their one and only true betrothed Lord, God, King, and Savior. As John says, quote, These are they which follow the Lamb wheresoever he goeth. These are the redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb." Unquote. It must be emphasized that both Paul and John use terminology and ideas drawn from common Jewish messianic teachings based upon biblical teachings presented at the outset of creation. They draw upon the type and analogies of God's creation ordinance of marriage as a template for the substance which is Christ and his church. In the end, we make the realization that God designed and created his ordinance of biblical marriage for just such a purpose. It was and is a shadow cast directly pointing distinctly to his intended substance Which is the light producing the shadow. Next, we go to Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 29. Quote, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus, and if ye be Christ's then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise." Here we are reminded according to Paul that in terms of fellowship, a relationship with God, salvation, men and women were equal at creation, We are equal at the fall, and we are equal at redemption. When it is said that, quote, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus, unquote, we should not imagine that what is meant is that upon salvation, God performs the equivalent of a gender neutrality operation. Neither justification nor sanctification eliminate our roles given at creation. If anything, they eliminate the effects of sin because due to sin and rebellion, there is great and varying inequality between men and women. But if we are truly in Christ, we are one in Christ. Because of sin, gender roles and ideals have had their definition corrupted by the poison of secular humanism. Within secular humanism, the problem is that humans ultimately attempt to deify themselves. There is no one God who is in ultimate authority. Every person is God, and it is mankind who is the ultimate authority. Since this is the case, it is important that both men and women be allowed to be equally God and to be equal in having ultimate authority. But this is not the kind of equality that Paul is talking about in Galatians. What Paul is talking about is equality in being, not function. Throughout scripture, as we look at God's will for his creation, we see that men and women are both created in God's image. They are both, quote-unquote, very good. Hence, they are both equal in being. At the same time, each is different in function, yet designed with a unity of central purpose. Both the differences and similarities hold meaningful intended types pointing towards the substance of God's redemptive plan. It would behoove us all to remember that both Adam and Eve, man and woman, are both created by God and ultimately from nothing. Neither Adam nor Eve nor any other person is alive until God breathes his breath of life into us and we become a living soul. So when we say, quote-unquote, being, that which makes us who we really are, We are not talking about our physical bodies. We are not arguing about cosmetic differences of what is better in the way of reproductive organs or gender differences. We are talking about our spirits, which are neither male nor female. In this respect, our being, regardless of earthly temporal packaging, we are totally equal thus if we get caught up in gender wars about who is superior and why we miss the point that all these criteria are temporary housing for the intended use and glory of god but we should not make the mistake of saying that because humans are equal in being that we are also equal in function It's like comparing a prosecutor and a public defender. Both are trained attorneys. Both have a degree. Both deal with criminal law. As they stand before the judge, they are equal in being. Yet, they are different in function. One attempts to prove a person or persons guilty of a particular crime or crimes and the other attempts to prove a person or persons innocent of a particular crime or crimes. Another example would be a plumber and the governor of a state. Both are human beings with equal value and rights as a person. Yet the governor, despite being a human being, has greater functioning authority due to their position. In every instance, the prosecutor, the public defender, the judge, the plumber, the governor, all are equal in being, but very different in function. We would not imagine trying to legislate totally uh, making everyone equal in function to one another. To do so would be to create anarchy to the system which we have created for smooth civil governing of our society. The checks and balances were designed and placed there for this purpose. Yet, when we talk about male and female, secular humanism often attempts to do this very thing. We must remember that difference in function is not inequality. It is simply God's design of an ordered universe to accomplish His purpose and glorify Him. When God proclaims that, quote, all have fallen short of God's glory, unquote, and that there is, quote, none that doeth good, no, not one, unquote, there are no qualifying tenses of gender to indicate that either a man, any man, or a woman, any woman, is exempt or better than the other. If we are without Christ then both men and women are equally guilty and worthy of death and eternal suffering. If so be that God is pleased to draw us to himself through his Son and his finished work, then both man and woman are equally justified in his sight, and neither has anything to boast of one over the other. In rebellion both men and women will equally experience His justice, righteousness, holiness, and ultimately His wrath. In reconciliation, both men and women equally have demonstrated His mercy, grace, love, patience, and peace. Whoever we are, wherever we are, whatever our situation, our purpose is to glorify, magnify God with all that we have. This concludes this episode. Please join me for part six. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor-yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at Yahoo.com Thank you for listening.
1: The world falls around me. I rest and know that he has found me. Christ the rock is my foundation. I will trust him. I will trust him. I will trust him